KPRX, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. And I'm Bobby Bascom. For Earth Day, President Biden is gathering world leaders for a virtual White House conference on the climate emergency. I think this is a very significant moment because it's the first major foreign policy initiative of the President of the United States, and he's decided to devote that to the climate issue and try to signal that we're really running out of time. Also, millennials lean into reducing and recycling with stooping on Instagram. I know there's people who would never even look at a stoop who follow me and suddenly they like they got caught up in it because of of the trendiness so i think in that way we have been able to change some people's buying habits and patterns to have a greater environmental impact that and more this week on living on earth stick around From PRX and the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bobby Bascom. And I'm Steve Kerwood. For Earth Day this year, President Biden is convening leaders from around the world for a virtual conference on the climate emergency. Mr. Biden's first major foreign policy initiative is a high-wire act when it comes to cooperating with China over the climate. The U.S. is much at odds with the People's Republic, particularly over human rights, military moves in the South China Sea, and pressures on Taiwan and Hong Kong. For more about what's at stake, we're joined now by Alden Meyer, Senior Associate of E3G. Welcome back to the program, Alden. Good to be with you again, Steve. So come Earth Day, President Biden is hosting this virtual summit on the climate at the White House, inviting leaders from around the world. And I think one of the biggest questions is, what is the United States going to put on the table as this nation's nationally determined commitments? What will it be? Well, that's right. Remember, when we entered Paris under President Obama, the U.S. put forward a target for emissions reductions domestically for the year 2025. The Biden administration has announced they will put forward a new target for what we are going to do here in the U.S. by 2030. We are calling on that reduction to be at least 50% below 2005 levels to get us on track to the net zero emissions commitment that the president has made for 2050. What are the odds, Alden, do you think that we'll see that number from the Biden administration? Well, I think uh, we have a good chance. A number of analyses by environmental groups, uh, business organizations, academic think tanks, and others show that a reduction of that magnitude is achievable. It's cost-effective, it would have tremendous health benefits, and it would bring economic benefits to to the U.S. and employ millions of people. Now, this is a summit of leaders from around the world. I'm curious as to who is expected to be there. Well, the invitations have gone out to 40 countries. Of course, these include all the major economies, but it also includes a number of vulnerable countries, such as Antigua and Barbuda, Bangladesh, Bhutan, Marshall Islands. So this is going to be a a pretty broad discussion over two days on a range of topics, including uh, not only what countries can do in terms of raising their ambition, but how we need to cooperate to innovate and rapidly deploy uh, technologies needed to get us to net zero emissions by mid-century. What will China's engagement look like at this summit? Of course, the United States and China aren't exactly best friends right now, diplomatically, and yet we're the top two emitters of carbon today on the planet. That's right, and that's one of the uh, unanswered questions a week out from the summit. China has yet to formally accept the invitation for President Xi to attend the summit. All observers believe that ultimately he will accept 
And of course, China has not yet fully lived into the commitment that President Xi made last September at the United Nations General Assembly to reach net zero carbon dioxide emissions in China no later than 2060. Their most recent five-year plan unveiled last month really doesn't have the kind of increases in near-term ambition that we need to see to put them on that trajectory, and they are still building coal plants domestically. So the big question is, will China signal any near-term changes in its climate strategy before the summit? And if so, uh, will they bring that increased ambition into the summit as a marker of how serious they are about providing leadership on this issue? What do we expect to hear at the White House Summit on Earth Day on the climate with the leaders from those countries that are most vulnerable now from climate disruption? Well, I think they're going to make the case that the world needs to step up its assistance to their countries on adaptation, on resilience investments, on coping with the climate impacts they are experiencing. They're going to particularly put pressure on the U.S. and other developed countries to scale up uh, climate finance and to make sure that a larger share of that financial assistance goes towards adaptation. They're shooting for 50% of climate finance assistance to be devoted to adaptation and and dealing with climate impacts as opposed to the roughly 20-25% share of uh, finance that's going in that direction now. Loss and damage is bound to be a crucial and controversial topic at this summit. Explain for us briefly what is loss and damage and how will it play out, do you think, in this White House Climate Summit? Well, loss and damage is basically the unavoidable impacts of climate change after you've done as much as you can on mitigation and adaptation. There are some things you just can't head off, like the impacts of sea level rise, of extreme weather events such as hurricanes and typhoons. So you need help for countries that are experiencing those climate impacts to deal with them. Some of the developing countries and and some of the international uh, non-governmental groups have said that the U.S. and and other Western economies that are largely responsible for historical emissions of greenhouse gases have a responsibility to compensate these countries for the damage they're experiencing. And of course, you're talking here about potentially hundreds of billions of dollars a year in costs of these impacts. So it's been something that the U.S., Europe, other developed countries have been very reluctant to engage in, but I think they will have to deal with that It is an issue the vulnerable countries and others will put front and center on the agenda, and there needs to be an adult discussion about what we're going to do about it going forward. I'm inferring from that that it hasn't always been very polite. Has there been food fights over this, Alden? There have been tremendous food fights over this. I recall back at the Conference of the Parties meeting in Doha, Qatar in 2012, the entire conference almost collapsed because of a fight between the U.S. and the alliance of small island states on the last night of the summit. Uh, It also was a tough issue in the run-up to Paris. It is a difficult issue, but it is something we have to come to grips with. And I believe that we'll see some signals from the Biden-Harris administration that as long as we stay away from sort of expressing it in terms of compensation or liability for past emissions, that the U.S. may be willing to step up and, and provide more assistance going forward. Alden, you've been covering the international climate negotiations for, well, north of 30 years, I think, at this point. What, if anything, has you excited about this summit? 
Well, I think this is a very significant moment because it's the first uh, major foreign policy initiative of the President of the United States, and he's decided to devote that to the climate issue. The U.S. is convening leaders from around the world to put this front and center on the geopolitical agenda and try to signal that we're really running out of time to get the actions we need to live into the commitments countries made five years ago in Paris. I think what gives me hope is that we're realizing we have the architecture in place with the Paris Agreement to get to where we need to go. And it's really no longer about negotiation of international treaties. It's about implementation. As, as Nike might say, just do it. The good news is I think countries are focused on that now. And the U.S. is exerting a lot of pressure on other countries like Japan, South Korea, Canada, and others to live into their commitments to get their emissions to net zero by mid-century. It's too bad this didn't happen uh, 10, 20, 25 years ago. We could have done a lot more. But I am hopeful that this is going to represent a, a major step forward. Alden Meyer is a senior associate with E3G. Thanks so much for taking the time with us. Thanks, Steve. It was great to be with you again. Well, it's time for a look beyond the headlines now with Peter Dykstra. Peter is an editor with Environmental Health News, that's ehn.org, and dailyclimate.org. Hey there, Peter. What do you have for us this week? Well, hi, Bobby. We're going to talk first about narwhals, these mystical creatures that look like they're fiction rather than fact. Narwhals are small whales, marine mammals that live in the Arctic, and the males have a tusk that can grow up to 10 feet long. They look like saltwater unicorns. And scientists have discovered that those tusks can reveal things about changes in the Arctic uh, via the narwhal's diet. So just like rings of a tree, uh, tusks of a narwhal can tell you a lot about what they eat, and that tells you a lot about how the Arctic is changing. Hmm. And so what have scientists been able to learn from their tusks? Uh, in about three decades' worth of research, They've noticed changes in the amount of mercury that can be found in narwhal tusks. Part of that is due, for at least part of the time of the last uh, 30 years, to emissions from coal power plants that can travel from all over the world, even Southeast Asia, to drop mercury into Arctic waters in addition to everywhere else. Mm. Yeah, it's such a, a remote part of the world, but yet, of course, pollution travels everywhere. It does, and particularly uh, persistent pollution, like some of the organic chemicals and mercury sources that come from the industrialized world. And of course, mercury can have all sorts of health problems from cognitive functioning and, and to reproduction. I mean, it, it seems like a probably a concern. A big concern. Yeah. Well, what else do you have for us this week? Uh, some uh, maybe bad news on a generally good news topic. Reforestation is cool. It's at least a partial solution to the amount of trees that we've lost, the amount of carbon mitigation that uh, we need around the world. But as reforestation kicks up, you may recall that former President Trump even endorsed something called the Trillion Trees Initiative for replanting trees around the world. Uh, everybody forgot something about this. In order to plant trees, you need seedlings. And in order to have seedlings, you need seeds. And we haven't been collecting the seeds nearly fast enough. 
Ah, details.、Uh, why are we so slow at getting the seeds that we need? Well, there was a study earlier this year in the journal Frontiers in Forest and Global Change. It was、uh, authored by scientists from the U.S. government, from、uh, universities, and from nonprofits. They、um, said that here in the U.S., we're about two billion seedlings a year short of where we want to get to even meet. Half of our reforesting potential. They estimated that there are 133 million acres to reforest by the year 2040. That's 133 million acres a year. That would require 34 billion seedlings, and we ain't got the seeds because they have to be collected by people, and there are not enough people on the ground doing this、uh, key work. And、uh, what about the trees? Are they producing seeds in the numbers that we would need? There's some evidence that trees in some parts of the world are not producing the same number of quality seeds. So there could be two obstacles to reforestation as a global fix to help with climate change and to help with habitat loss. Well, gosh, I hope we can figure something out.、Uh, we certainly need those trees. All right, Peter. And、uh, what do you have for us from the history books this week? A tenth anniversary. Ten years ago, from mid-April into the month of May, there were three immense tornado outbreaks in Tornado Alley in the U.S. and as far east as North Carolina, outside the traditional tornado belt. Hundreds of tornadoes. Well over three hundred deaths. Some of those tornadoes were major ones, F three and above. And the moral of that story is that ten years ago, three hundred plus deaths. This had happened fifty or sixty or a hundred years ago. It might have been a death toll in the thousands because、uh, we didn't have the weather diagnostics and we didn't have the communication through radio and TV back then. The death toll for tornadoes has gone way down、uh, in the last few decades. Well, that's certainly good news. Thanks, Peter. Peter Dykstra is an editor with Environmental Health News. That's ehn.org and DailyClimate.org. We'll talk to you again real soon. All right, Bobby. Thanks a lot. Talk to you soon. And there's more on these stories on the Living on Earth website. That's loe.org. Join us for the next Living on Earth book club on April twenty-first at noon Eastern. We will chat with Maria Ivanova, author of the untold story of the world's leading environmental institution, UNEP at fifty. Maria shares how the fiftieth anniversary of the United Nations Environment Program is a chance to reinvent quote the world's environmental conscience. Register for this free event at the Living on Earth website loe.org. Just click on events at the top of the page. If you like what you hear on Living on Earth, please join us with a gift of five dollars or more. Just go to loe.org and click on Donate at the top of the page. And thank you. It's living on Earth. I'm Bobby Bascom, and I'm Steve Kerwood.
Hey, Steve, have you ever put anything you don't need anymore out on the street in the hope that someone will pick it up or maybe found something you could use still sitting on the curb? Oh, yeah, both ways. In fact, back in college, that's how I furnished my first apartment. Yeah, right. You know, I used to live near a university in Boston, and at the end of the school year, the sidewalks were full of unwanted furniture and such. Surely a sign that summer is on the way, huh? Oh, yeah, totally. But, you know, finding free stuff on the street isn't just for college students. And according to our next guest, uh, New York City is entering a golden age for stooping. Stooping? Right, yeah. In many cities, stoops are the little spots in front of your door, maybe at the top of a couple of steps, where people hang out in the summer and put out the things they no longer need for other people to pick them up. And in New York, it's become really trendy, especially during the pandemic. I talk with Jessica Wolf about it. She runs the Instagram page Stooping in Queens. The term stooping really relates to cityscapes where they have stoops in front of apartment buildings where you can sit and hang out because there's a whole stoop culture. When you're stooping, you're finding things that people leave near or next to or on their stoops. People direct message me on Instagram and they'll send me a picture of an item or multiple items and the location. And then maybe part of the lure is my strange captions. I try to be really humorous. I really want the whole thing to be like this happy, uplifting community. How do you think stooping became kind of this cool activity now? It's become something that people are really excited to be a part of. Yeah, stooping has been around forever. I mean, stooping nowadays has really become trendy and cool. And I think that's partially because of social media. There's a lot of different social media accounts on Facebook and Instagram where they post pictures or they're like buy, sell, swap groups. And you have notifications of things that are being discarded. But I think social media has a very millennial demographic. And the reason why stooping has become cool is because of the association with that younger target audience. And it just kind of grabbed on during the pandemic last year. It really was relatable. The pictures and the photography, sometimes things look really aesthetic. And I think that makes them really attractive. And then it just became part of this culture especially like the city culture where people were just going around and they started doing it with their friends. They, they started doing it because it was, it was this adventure. It was thrilling. Well, how has stooping changed in the last year or so with the COVID virus, if at all? Yeah, that has drastically changed the world of stooping. Before, stooping wasn't cool, but I think the fact that there are so many things on the stoop now because people are moving, not just locally, but cross-country moves, international moves, and they don't have time to pack up their things. They have an apartment full of Ikea. They don't really want to take it with them. And you just see on my page entire apartments that are cleared out on the street. So I don't think that's really been what stooping has been about prior to the pandemic. People weren't just abandoning their homes and leaving everything they own on the curb. So I really think that it's created a lot more waste than than there was before. And I think having media pages like this has really given it a lot of visibility. So there's a lot more stuff out there. And at the same time, I would think people have a lot more time on their hands to go around looking for things and taking the time to improve it or to refinish it in a way that's going to work for them. 
Yeah, based on the times that I get DMs and the amount of things that I get messages for, I think people have a lot of time on their hands. You know, if you have a backyard or something, a lot of Queens apartments have backyards and they also have their own cars. They have backyards and parking spaces. So if you have time on your hands and, you know, your Zoom meeting is over and you see a really cool table on my page, you're probably going to go out and get it. <laughs> so <laughs> I know someone who has a backyard and they have a shed there with tools because they're like a DIY person and they've gotten a lot of things and refinished them to give to their cousins and their aunts. Their whole family has received stoop gifts that they've rescued and resuscitated. People have started businesses because of job loss. If they have these kinds of skills for woodworking or restoration, they've actually started Instagram companies where they renovate furniture and resell it. There's a lot of delivery services that have started as well who deliver things from stoop to stoop. They will pick up an item that you tag them in. They'll go to the location. They'll try to get it for you. And if they can secure the goods before another stupor, they will deliver it to your apartment same day or next day. So a lot of those companies have also started. Wow, that's amazing. The entrepreneurial spirit associated with stooping. I love it. Well, what is the potential, do you think, for stooping and this kind of thing to bring people together? You know, I'm thinking both of the people that maybe go out stooping together and participate in your Instagram feed, but also the relationship between the people putting these items out and the people picking them up. Relationships have formed because of stooping. Friendships. There was a really cool steel lamp and one of my followers took it in. And she didn't want it. And she just said, this is available. I have it. You know, if you want to come and pick it up, please DM me. And so I posted it and um, another stupor came and they chatted for like 30 minutes on the stoop. They just had this nice conversation and, and they're friends now. They send their stooping success stories to each other. So I definitely think the potential for this community outreach and this this friendship and respect is huge. And it's definitely bringing people together. There are not stoop wars. No one is physically fighting each other or getting upset with each other over missing out on an item. So I think there's this helpful, friendly air to the whole thing, which makes it a really positive and uplifting community. Now, obviously, if you are getting free things on the street, you're not buying something new and that free thing isn't going into a landfill. To what degree do you think environmental concerns are really on people's minds? Or have you looked into it all? You know, how many carbon emissions can be avoided and landfill space not taken up? I think this is a very complex question and it has a lot of different components because we're working together to try to reduce landfill waste. You know, we're taking orders away from, from stores. But I think it also has a component of the way that we live. And we live in this way where overconsumption is something that people don't even realize that they do. We just don't need the amount of stuff that we're buying. More importantly, we are reducing carbon emissions. I know two months ago that my account had saved over 1 million pounds of landfill waste from Queens. You know, hopefully this also makes people rethink their buying habits. I know there's people who would never even look at a stoop who follow me and suddenly they like, they got caught up in it because of the trendiness. So I think in that way, we have been able to change some people's buying habits and patterns 
to have a greater environmental impact. Well, in addition to telling people where you can find cool stuff, you also have success stories on your Instagram feed that really show the trash to treasure potential for things. Can you tell us a couple of your favorite examples of taking something found on the street and making it into something really, really unique and beautiful? Yeah, this is definitely one of the most exciting parts of the stoop journey. One of my recent followers, he got this antique wooden chest with gold fixtures on it and it looked pretty beat up and dusty on the street and he took it home and he restored it and it turns out it's this Chinese trunk and it has an entire manuscript written inside which I couldn't even see from the initial picture that I posted so he restored it and it's in his living room now it's like a plant stand (laughs) but it was beautiful you know from start to finish it was this dusty discarded thing you would never know that it was, first of all, valuable. I think it's value over $400. And secondly, it's just a nice aesthetic too. So that was a really cool one. I saw that on your Instagram feed and it's it's just beautiful. It makes me feel rather inadequate. <laughs> I look at this thing on the street and, and would pass right by it, but then that somebody can take that and turn it into something that's so exquisite. You'd expect to you know, spend a lot of money in a store on something that looks so so nice. I'm envious of people that have those skills because I do not. (laughs) Yeah, I am too. Um, (laughs) I can't can't do any of that. (laughs) Well, you host an Instagram page, Stooping at Queens, but what about the rest of the country or the world for that matter? Is this a trend that you think could be taking off in other places? Yeah, a lot of other stooping pages have started and reached out to me. And a lot of my stoopers are not in Queens. There are a couple of pages that started in L.A., There was a page that started in Virginia. The trendiness is not, it's not limited. Maybe it's like a community need that's bringing people a lot of joy. Jessica Wolf works in sustainable fashion and runs Stooping in Queens on Instagram. Jessica, thank you so much for all of these stooping stories. Not only has it been a pleasure, it's been really fun. (laughs) Thanks for having me. In certain parts of the country, if one drills a deep hole and pumps in liquids under high pressure, the hydraulic forces can crack the rocks and release natural gas. Fracking has been a cheap way to extract domestic fossil fuel, and nationwide some 170 new natural gas electric power generators are in the works. For some, it means jobs, but for others, as the Allegheny Front's Julie Grant reports from Guernsey County in eastern Ohio, it can make for nightmare neighbors. Kevin and Marlene Young built their house in the country so they had space for horses. I was raised around horses. That's my love. Their horses aren't just pets. They built a half-mile track to train them as race horses, and they've won tens of thousands of dollars. We're getting ready to retire. I thought we had it handled. About even got it all paid for. Visiting them now, things don't seem handled. Big trucks drive past the house throughout the day. The farm field next door has become an industrial construction site. The air is often filled with dust. There's a thick layer of it on their new truck. In the summer of 2019, Caithness Energy started building one of the largest gas plants of its kind in the country. There's already a pipeline that will run natural gas from Pennsylvania and Ohio to the site. The Guernsey Power Station will generate enough power for 1.5 million homes. But the Youngs don't want to live next door to it. 
Like others who live nearby, they say the construction has caused cracks in their walls. My dishes shake, my bedroom is on the second floor, and it's like you put a quarter in one of them beds, that's how it vibrates. Keithness declined to comment about claims that its construction caused damage. The Youngs have stopped training their horses, even putting them on respirators. Marlene falls apart when she talks about her best horse, Creekside Pete. I had to sell him to get him out of here because of the stuff going on. The Youngs want Keithness to buy them out. The company declined to comment. County records show it bought homes from three other families in the neighborhood. Meanwhile, many people in the area see the new gas plant as hope for the region's future. When Caithness came here in 2016, Norm Blanchard, economic development director for the region, was thrilled by the idea of a $1.6 billion plant. For us, it was almost like a carnival coming to town. The company is spending millions to prepare the site and has promised $42 million to the local school system over 30 years. It promised 1,000 construction jobs. When it opens in 2022, it will employ 30 high-tech workers. Blanchard wishes it was more, but he's not complaining. As he stands along the highway looking at the huge construction site, he says all the cranes here are like a billboard for economic development. Something like this, to be able to locate it here, puts you on the map. Like many areas near power plants, the poverty rate here is high. Environmental attorney Dave Altman says many communities jump at the money and jobs offered by deep-pocketed energy companies. Local governments somewhat understandably at times blindly accept promises and operate in denial to the uh, collateral damage to the people who are left behind. Kevin and Marlene Young say they haven't gotten help from the government on any level. There are no local zoning codes or land use restrictions. And while Ohio has strict laws ensuring wind turbines aren't built too close to homes, the state has no such requirement for gas plants. At the federal level, the Trump administration removed a rule in Ohio's federal air quality plan in December that gave citizens some protection from environmental nuisances like dust and odors that endanger health and property. They would have been able for 40 years to take that evidence into court And now they won't be able to do that directly anymore. In an email, Ohio EPA said it still retains authority and will enforce the nuisance rule. The power plant has its permits from the agency with limits on pollutants like volatile organic compounds and particulate matter. Ohio EPA said pollution levels outside the facility will not cause harm. But the youngs don't want to wait to find out. I'd just as soon go get us a little trailer, a little place someplace, clear out of the state to get away from this whole place. The family has recently retained a lawyer. Julie Grant's story comes to us courtesy of the Allegheny Front. Most bird species are diligent parents, sitting on their precious eggs through weeks of incubation, despite rain and wind. And if there were a contest for the most doting of bird parents, the albatross might just be the winner. Bird Notes' Wenfei Tong has more. For most albatross species, raising a chick is a real challenge. Waved albatrosses produce such slow-growing, needy offspring that females lay only a single egg every two years, and both parents need to share the load until youngsters can hunt on their own. Albatrosses tend to pair for life, 
and it can take a while to find the right partner. So some species don't start breeding until they're 10 years old, with some individuals even waiting till they're 20. Reunited pairs go through an elaborate, synchronized ritual of braying, wing spreading and bill tapping to reaffirm their bonds before getting down to the business of breeding. In Hawaii, biologists were puzzled to find that some Lazen albatross pairs had not one, but two eggs. Then they found that some of the birds going so faithfully through the ritualized series of courtship displays were both female. Although the eggs were fertilized by males that had since died or were from other pairs, the females were bonded to each other. Many of these female couples remain together for years. They can't successfully raise both offspring, but their combined efforts are necessary to raise one chick. I'm Wenfei Tong. For pictures, soar on over to the Living on Earth website, loe.org. up poetry to help us understand our place in the climate emergency. Keep listening to Living on Earth. Support for Living on Earth comes from Sailors for the Sea and Oceana, helping boaters race clean, sail green, and protect the seas they love. More information at sailorsforthesea.org. Our sponsor this week is a new donation website called givingmultiplier.org. Using Giving Multiplier, you can donate to any charity you want and have your donation matched by up to 50%. Giving Multiplier not only adds to your donations, it also helps you find the world's most effective charities, ones that save more lives and do more good with every dollar. Here's how it works. You pick two charities. One of them is from a list of the super effective charities, like the Against Malaria Foundation. Then you decide how to divide your donation between the two. And if you use the invite code EARTH, your donation can be matched by up to 50%. Check it out at givingmultiplier.org. And speaking of philanthropy, we hope that Living on Earth is one of your favorite charities. We couldn't make this show without your support. Donations from people like you help fund our weekly broadcast on climate change, ecology, and public health. Thank you. These days, the world is experiencing a convergence of crises, and some argue that the greatest of them all is the climate crisis, and few of us really know what to do about it. Isn't it all just too big for any one of us? That's the focus of Outrage and Optimism, a lively weekly podcast from Global Optimism. On Outrage and Optimism, Cristiana Figueres, former UN climate chief, and her partners Tom Rivet-Karnak and Paul Dickinson set out to help us navigate the complexities of tackling climate change. They talk to business leaders, politicians, scientists, activists from around the world, and they ask the questions. What makes you feel outraged about climate change? And what is there to be optimistic about? Their inspirational conversations demand that we each take a deep breath and decide that together we can do this. 
So don't wait. Subscribe to Outrage and Optimism on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts for new episodes every Thursday. We know you've been alarmed and exhausted by the social and political turmoil of the past year in the United States and all over the world. But hey, at the same time, there's been unprecedented mobilization to defend democracy, promote civil rights, and address the climate crisis. Are you feeling this same mix of anxiety and hope? Well, we wanted to let you know about a new podcast that is diving into all that and more and helping listeners make sense of it all. It's called Democracy in Danger. Democracy in Danger is a show from the University of Virginia that translates deep knowledge into compelling stories and engaging interviews. Each week, hosts Will Hitchcock and Shiva Vaidanathan unearth the threats facing democracy and ask what we can do about it. Visit dindanger.org for more. That's D-I-N-D-A-N-G-E-R dot O-R-G. And subscribe to Democracy in Danger on any podcast app. It's Living on Earth. I am Bobby Bascom. And I'm Steve Kerwood. We're celebrating Poetry Month this year with Catherine Pierce. This award-winning author of poetry collections, including Famous Last Words and Danger Days, teaches creative writing at Mississippi State University. Catherine Pierce joins me now from Rehoboth, Delaware. Welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you so much for having me on. Our pleasure. So, Catherine, environmental disaster seems to be, well, can I call it a muse of sorts for you? <laughs> tell me, tell me, why is that? That's a great question. A muse. Yeah, I guess, I mean, I guess we could call it that. It's a terrifying muse, but I guess we could call it that. Um, I've become increasingly impacted just in my day-to-day life by extreme weather, by these things that are changing in the way that I think a lot of us have. I live in Mississippi. I'm in Delaware right now, but I teach at Mississippi State and I've been living there for 14 years and we've had, you know, more and more tornadoes, tornadic weather, strong storm systems coming up through the Gulf and people's lives have just been completely disrupted and sometimes destroyed by these things. And so that's part of it is, is having had some very real experiences, very close calls with tornadoes and knowing a lot of people who have had homes destroyed or who have lost loved ones because of these things. And I also became a mother while I was living in Mississippi. Um, I have two kids and we try to get outside a lot. We try to experience the outside world as much as we can. And it's a thing that brings us a lot of joy. But there's something about trying to impart that joy to my children that's always kind of tinged with this sadness or this feeling of guilt as I think about how this world as we know it is shifting every single day and what's going to be left by the time they're my age. Now, if you grew up near the Chesapeake, then you must have been well aware of nature as a child, as a young person coming up. What's changed about your perception of the environment now as an adult in these times of climate disruption? I mean, one thing that I've noticed is the fact that small things are different. Things like the fact that when I was growing up, we had snow pretty regularly, you know, up in Wilmington, Delaware, where I grew up. And now there's less of that. I mean, we're getting extreme snow. We're getting crisis snow. But we're not getting as much of that sort of reliable, pleasant, you know, several inches, close the school for a day kind of snow. And so, you know, you see these little changes. Or I see things like I teach at Mississippi State, and we have this beautiful campus with all these beautiful blooming trees. And a couple of years ago, I remember walking outside and seeing that one of our trees near the English building 
was blooming, but it was the fall. It was a tree that should be blooming in the spring. And the tree was confused. Something about the weather had, had confused it. So, and you, you know, you see these things occasionally. And then thinking about just extreme weather popping up throughout the country, the tornadoes that are getting increasingly bad in the deep south and also in the Midwest, the extreme weather that we saw in Texas not so long ago. All these things, all of this extreme weather that's coming through, all as a result of disruption and of climate crisis. And these are things that, you know, again, I'm observing from the perspective of just a, a person, you know, living my life. And I'm not a meteorologist, I'm not a scientist, but I'm paying attention and I'm aware of the way the sun feels on my face and I'm aware of the way the wind feels when I step outside. And they're subtle shifts, but they're, but they're very real. And if you look at the data, all the stats are there, but I think we can see it in very day-to-day ways as well. You have a poem that I'd like to ask you to read that, that really seems to capture, well, kind of the element of, of exhaustion of dealing with the constant climate disruption now. It's called If Slash When. Yeah, this poem was first published in the Southern Review. If When. The poem I planned to write was about last week's hurricane, about how I live in Mississippi, not that far from the storm's rages, and how even still we felt nothing here, nothing at all. That was going to be the ending, because I wanted to make a point about how easy it is to ignore disaster when it's not churning directly over your town, and I was hoping a reader might then extrapolate a larger point about disturbance and proximity like how politicians are always saying they used to oppose X until some terrible Y happened to their daughters. And it seems to me we're requiring an awful lot from daughters these days. Sons, too. This week, a message from my kid's school district included the phrase, if, when, a lockdown is ever necessary. The reason I'm writing this poem instead of the one I'd planned is that I keep thinking about that email, and also now the hurricane was a week ago, and there's a new disturbance forming near the Bahamas. And last night, Sioux Falls was tornado-shredded, and in Sterling, Colorado, egg-sized hail pummeled windshields, and I guess what I'm saying is, why bother with one poem about one hurricane, one email? There will be more, and there will be more, and there will be more until there is nothing left. The thing about the poem I was going to write is that it would have been a lie. That nonsense about how we don't feel it here. We feel it everywhere, don't we? Dear daughter, dear son, dear someone something, we're well past the if and into the when. Talk about proximity. Some days I wear the world like a skin. I am tired of waiting for extrapolation. Let us all be disturbances now. Yeah. So what are the climate impacts that have made perhaps the deepest impressions on you? Certainly for me, it's been the tornadoes that I've seen living in Mississippi. And we see tornadoes every year. We have tornado warnings regularly in the spring and fall, especially. And, you know, the sirens go off and everyone's in their bathtubs because we don't have basements there because the the water level is too high. So everyone just hunkers down in their bathtubs and hopes for the best. But that for me has had a huge impact In 2011, that was when the tornado super outbreak occurred, if you remember that, that really decimated a lot of the Deep South. More than 300 people were killed that day and thousands more were injured. And 
on that day, I happened to be traveling with my husband and our infant son. I just had my first son. He was four months old and we were driving. We knew the weather was supposed to be bad, but we didn't really have a sense of things exactly. And this was before we had smartphones, so we couldn't really check anything. We just had the radio on as we were driving. And we got to Coleman, Alabama and saw that the sky looked really bad and really strange. And so we pulled over and went into a day's in. And as soon as we got inside, some people came running in saying, it's out there, the tornado is coming. And so we all, me and my husband and our son and the few people in the lobby, we all ran into the the bathrooms because they were the most interior rooms off the lobby. And we all just kind of hunkered down there. And I just remember people screaming and the power went out. And it, I mean, it was definitely the scariest single moment of my life. And we were all pretty sure we were going to die. And we didn't, obviously. And the tornado did not hit the days in where we were, although it did hit Kalman. And several people were killed and many more were injured. But we were very lucky. And that experience crystallized a lot of things for me about weather and climate, but also about being a parent and being a parent who writes poems. And that experience became the catalyst for the book that I went on to write, which was called The Tornado is the World, and became sort of a lens through which I could explore um, parenthood, which was new for me and which I didn't quite know how to write about yet. And so I, I did. I developed a series of persona in that book and used those and sort of created a narrative of people dealing with the aftermath of an EF4 tornado, which was what that tornado had been. So um, why don't you read one of your tornado poems for us? Sure. And this was the first poem that I wrote after that tornado experience. And so this is the one that is pretty autobiographical, at least in terms of what I was feeling in that moment. And in the book, the tornado takes on its own persona, because to me, it always feels like a tornado has agency. I always feel like it's making a decision about what it's doing somehow. And so this poem addresses that. It's called The Mother Warns the Tornado. I know I've already had more than I deserve. These lungs that rise and fall without effort. The husband who sets free house lizards. This red-doored ranch, my mother on the phone, the fact that I can eat anything, gouda, popcorn, masaman curry, without worry. Sometimes I feel like I've been overlooked, checks and balances, and I wait for the tally to be evened. But I am a greedy son of a b- and there I know we are kin. Tornado, this is my child. Tornado, I won't say I built him, but I am his shelter. For months, I buoyed him in the ocean, on the highway. On crowded streets, I learned to walk with my elbows out. And now he is here, and he is new, and he is a small moon, an open face, a heart. Tornado, I want more. Nothing is enough. Nothing ever is. I will heed the warning protocol. I will cover him with my body. I will wait with mattress and flashlight. But know this, if you come down here, if you splinter your way through our pines, if you suck the roof off this red-doored ranch, if you reach out a smoky arm for my child, I will turn hacksaw. I will turn grenade. I will invent for you a throat and choke you. I will find your stupid, wicked, whirling head and cut it off. Do not test me. 
If you come down here, I will teach you about greed and hunger. I will slice you into palm-sized gusts. Then I will feed you to yourself. How fair is it to say that the climate has given you PTSD? Oh, very fair. (laughs) I think that following the tornado experience, that was something that I hadn't realized that was what I was kind of working through in writing those poems, but it, but it was. And a lot of those poems deal very directly with that, with that feeling of not being able to see the world the way that you saw it prior to this event. And uh, as a mother, how do your kids shape your writing about something that, well, it's in the process now of impacting their lives and it'll be with them for a long, long time? Absolutely. Well, so I, my book Danger Days came out in October of 2020. And that book deals a lot with climate crisis and a lot with parenting through climate crisis and thinking about ways that I can try to, you know, hold these two ideas simultaneously, the idea of being afraid and angry and trying to take action on behalf of the planet and genuinely celebrating and finding joy in all the marvels of our planet and trying to impart that to my kids, trying to say, yes, let's go out and let's find these beautiful things. And look, there is a blue heron. And oh my gosh, let's find out what kind of flower this is. And so trying to kind of find that balance of not wanting to frighten my kids, but also wanting them to be informed while still finding genuine joy in our amazing planet and all it has to offer. Catherine, there's another poem of yours that grapples with what some might even see as beauty in climate disruption. It's called Anthropocene Pastoral. Could you read that for us and set it up for us as well? Absolutely. So this poem is called Anthropocene Pastoral, and I wrote it following the California superbloom of 2017, when the the deserts in California were covered in just these gorgeous, gorgeous wildflowers and people were flocking there to see them. And when I did some reading about this, I found that this was caused by the, the region had had its worst dry spell in history, and then it was followed by twice the normal wintertime precipitation and that led to this really beautiful event. And so I was thinking about that as I was writing this poem about the ways that sometimes destruction can look like beauty, can be beauty in a way. This is called Anthropocene Pastoral. In the beginning, the ending was beautiful. Early spring everywhere, the trees furred pink and white, lawns the sharp green that meant new. The sky so blue it looked manufactured. Robins. We'd heard the cherry blossoms wouldn't blossom this year. But what was one epic blooming, when even the desert was an explosion of verbena? When bobcats slinked through primroses? When coyotes slept deep in orange poppies? One New Year's Day, we woke to daffodils, wisteria, onion grass wafting through the open windows. Near the end, we were eyeletted. We were cottoned. We were sundressed and barefoot. At least it's starting gentle, we said. An absurd comfort, we knew, a placebo. But we were built like that. Built to say, at least. Built to reach for the heat of skin on skin, even when we were already hot. 
built to love the purpling desert in the twilight, built to marvel over the pink-bursting dogwoods, to hold tight to every pleasure, even as we rocked together toward the graying, even as we held each other, warmth to warmth, and said, sorry, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry, while petals sifted softly to the ground all around us. Catherine, it sounds like you're, in a way, seeking permission to find beauty in in what can happen during climate disruption, to, quote, hold tight to every pleasure. How do you think allowing ourselves to see this beauty in the midst of this emerging disaster is vital for our emotional resilience? I think it's crucial for two reasons. One is... I mean, as you say, it's it's vital for our emotional resilience. If we're not able to take joy and pleasure in these moments as we find them, how will we possibly be strong enough to do what we need to do, which is, which is the other part of why it's necessary. We need to be able to recognize this beauty so that we can try to save it, right? We need to feel spurred to action by our relationship with this planet and with everything that it offers us. We need art, we need beauty, we need poems and walks in the woods and songs and essays. We need all these things to allow us to feel the true pleasure that comes from paying attention to this world, which is just an absolutely remarkable place. But then we also need to feel strengthened by that into taking action, into trying to keep this amazing planet as something that our kids can explore with the same pleasure that we could and that their kids hopefully can explore with the same kind of pleasure as well. Catherine Pierce is the author of Danger Days, The Tornado is the World, and other books of poems. Thanks so much for taking the time with us today. Thank you so much for talking with me. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Paloma Beltran, Grace Callahan, Jenny Doring, Jay Feinstein, Paige Greenfield, Mark Seth Lender, Don Lyman, Ainsley O'Neill, Jake Rigo, Natalie So, and Yolanda Omari. Tom Tiger engineered our show. Allison Lerstein composed our themes. You can hear us anytime at LOE.org, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts, and like us, please, on our Facebook page, Living on Earth. We tweet from at Living on Earth and find us on Instagram at Living on Earth Radio. I'm Bobby Bascom. And I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from you, our listeners, and from the University of Massachusetts, Boston, in association with its School for the Environment, developing the next generation of environmental leaders, and from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems.